How many times have you seen a writer's first time script actually be sold or optioned? Personally, never. Never. First bit of advice that I have is you're not going to sell it. The truth is, your first script probably nobody should ever see. Well, you always want to be thinking about it. <laughs> I mean, you, you're going to be, you can be thinking about giving your first Oscar speech. You do the John Milius. You'd come in armed, strapped. You take your gun out, you put it on the desk in front of the executive and go, so what are your story notes? I've never personally seen it. Um, and I think that that's a fantastic dream scenario. I think those unknowns that get you know, sell their very first script for six figures or seven figures and get a first look deal at a major studio. Um, those are very rare. And if that does happen to a writer, you'll read about it in the trades. A lot of new screenwriters think that it's going to be easy and it's not. And they think that they're going to write one script and it's going to sell. And that's not the way it works. It's like you're going to basically be, you have to love writing because you're going to be doing a lot of it. You are going to be working on this story for weeks or months to get a draft. And then you're gonna to be told, unless you are William Shakespeare, you're gonna to be told that there's a lot of problems and you're gonna to have to do another draft. This, all along this process, writers fall out because they think it's gonna be a week or they think it's, I could do this in 10 days, I got this story in me completely, I'm just gonna write it down and I'm gonna sell it and I'm gonna live in Malibu. I was teaching class yesterday and, and I told the writers, if you're pitching a script that is your first script, don't ever say, this is my first script. Because the minute that we hear, people like me hear, this is my first script, we know this is your learning script. You're gonna learn how to write on your first, second, third script. By the fourth script, you're gonna get kinda good. By the fifth script, you'll really have a handle on your voice. So there is no selling that first script. The thing about a first project is that it's not, you're not writing it for it to be made. You're writing it to be your calling card. So. Every writer needs to have a couple of scripts that they can show as this is an example of what I can do. I know my craft. I know uh, the business of this art form. I can marshal people's emotions. I can take a character on a journey. Uh, so, because nobody's going to buy your first script or your first two scripts, you're looking to get work. You're looking for people to say, wow, you know what you're doing. I have this little project and we, are, we need a writer for it. Uh, so that, that the, the, that's why you don't want that first project to be your weird kind of, you know, highly stylized passion, passion thing yes. because nobody wants to make that. You know, they're looking to see, can you do a good basic job of your craft? I, we need a writer who can do, deliver, you know, strong um, in tone and mm -hmm. genre and yeah. can really deliver strong characters and, and a plot that moves. So a lot of people have the wrong sample script. They have the wrong idea of it. And then they're just constantly holding out hope that, you know, somebody's going to buy this script and they miss the fact that, no, that's not what it's for. For somebody starting out, you're trying to get work and you need to show that you know your business, you know your, your field. It's funny, I, at my class, the class which meets tonight, in the first class, I always brag about all of the scripts that got um, written in the class that became movies. Now, most of the people who succeed don't sell the scripts that they uh, write in the class, much less have them made into movies. They use them as showcases. They win representation. They win development deals and rewrite assignments and other kinds of, of uh, rewards. Um, but there are some that have actually been written right in the classes that became movies. Um, and uh, I brag to the eight writers around the table about those. First thing I do, the next thing I do is I tell them, now please don't try to sell the scripts that you write in this class. 
and then I take a long silence uh, and I let people think about what seems like a contradiction. I've just been bragging about all the scripts that have sold out of the class and here I am saying please don't try to sell the scripts that you read in the class and I point out to the student that you write in the class and then I point out to the writers uh, that it's not a contradiction. I didn't sell don't I didn't say don't sell the scripts that you write in the class. I said don't try to sell the scripts that you write in the class. If you're thinking about the sale while you're working on it, you are doomed. You are lost. Um, you're uh, intellectualizing, you're calculating, you're getting into all kinds of uh, um, processes that are that will militate against successful art. You're getting again too intellectual, too into your head when you think that way. You start to think about trends, what's popular, who might this be right for. I literally don't know anybody, literally, who sold the, their first script in recent years. I mean, granted, last night I interviewed uh, Scott Alexander and, and Larry Karzowski, um, who wrote um, Ed Wood, Larry Flint, Man in the Moon, and they did manage to sell their first script, but this was in 1980-something. Um, and, they, and they said in the room, this is clearly not the way that it's done. Um, so in all likelihood, Odds are you're not going to sell your first. You got to love it. You got to put your heart into it. But you have to understand this is an intellectual exercise in learning how to write screenplays. We did take on a client who had recently graduated from um, USC, and she had written a very compelling script about um, her experiences with 9/11, and uh, she had. Uh, just put together a, a very, very fascinating package and it turned heads and we liked it and we talked about it at the agency and she got represented there. But I don't think that that script ever got made. I think it got a representation and that was big. Um, but you know, she wasn't dealing with seven figures and, and all those other lucrative things. This was ages ago, but the WGA did a um, survey and found that the average screenwriter wrote nine scripts before they made a cent. And a lot of people think, I'm going to write two or three scripts, and if that doesn't, if nothing happens in my career, then I'm going to quit. And it's like, that's, you're quitting way too early. You got to like stick it out, write as many scripts as you can, and eventually one of those scripts is going to hit. And even then, once you've sold a script, people ask me things like, so how did you break in? And my answer is, which time? Because it's like every time you sell a script, you do the rewrites on that script, and then you're unemployed, which means you have to find another job. And that it's, you're constantly breaking in. You're constantly having to sell things to people you don't know, you've never met before, and just keep the ball rolling, you know? The, there's only so much that your representation can do for you. The rest of it, you kind of have to do yourself. Uh, it was actually nine years, and, um, I, and, I, and there was a progression along the way. Uh, I got out, out of college. I worked for about six or eight months in San Francisco, then moved back to Los Angeles. And that's when I started writing spec scripts. And I wrote uh, a spec movie by myself. Then I had a partner and she and I wrote spec sitcoms. And this was simultaneous to doing commercial production. I eventually got a chance to work on, in a production capacity on movies and TV and would write more spec scripts when I was unemployed and then got into the Director's Guild as a second assistant director. And that's when I got my first almost break there where the producer's brother of the movie I was working on was trying to help develop their television 
part of their production company, and his assistant learned that I was, had spec scripts and asked to read the spec script my partner and I had written and said, hey, this is really good, and got it to an agent, an incredibly prestigious agent who was William Goldman's agent at the time, and Joan Diddy, um, the agency, I don't know if it was the agent. And in, in hindsight, I know that the agency was just doing this powerful producer's brother a favor. They took us on as clients on a 30-day trial basis. And of course, they sent the script out to shows that said, yeah, we got writers already. This is okay. So that came and went. I kept writing. I kept working as an assistant director. Um, and, I, and I got encouragement along the way. I believe that those stories really stem from writers who actually have a career in motion. Um, and they have contacts they can reach out to. And it's not that they sit and actually write a screenplay over 48 hours, it's that they have an idea and they already have a team of people who trust them because they've delivered so many quality scripts in the past. Uh, a newbie writer from scratch uh, throwing an idea to a major studio and expecting a check in the mail or, or some uh, big contract with an agent, I've never seen it happen. And I think that maybe a script has moved from point A to point B and has maybe moved up the channels. By the time that movie reached the screen, um, I, I don't think it had any similarities to the original idea, and I'm not sure that the writer received anything from it either. I've never heard of it. I made a couple of movies for them that were, you know, incrementally bigger and better than the independent film I'd made that got me those jobs. Um, and it was the fact that I had done one of these films for them well. I delivered the script that they wanted. I delivered it on time. I was relatively easy to work with during the development process. I don't know if the director of development would agree with me 100% on that, because you know any creative people are going to have clashes. Um, but in the end, I remember that they're the ones paying the bills, and they understand what their market is. So I give them what they want. And then I go out and I make the best film I possibly can on the money they give me. And I put together the best team of people, people who aren't going to say, oh, it's only a $200,000 crappy asylum mockbuster. They're going to say, we're going to make this the best battleship movie we can, or the best um, alien planet movie we can, or the best zombie film we can, given the resources available to us. And it was the fact that I had done that and delivered to them what they needed and something that showed I actually cared about the material and that I had some intelligence and I had some style. It was that that made them come to me and say, we want you to write a movie called Shark Storm. And for me to be in a position to say, no, why would I want to write a movie called Shark Storm? Haven't we had enough dumb shark movies? And they went away and said, all right, we'll find somebody else to do it. And then a month later, they came back to me and they said, what we really want you to do is write a movie called Sharknado. And I said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And if I can write it that way, then sure, I'll do it. I'd love to do it. And thank God they said, yes, it's okay to be ridiculous on a movie called Sharknado. You know, and from there, in the last two years, I've had... Uh, some modicum of success that hopefully now is leading to bigger and better things. But it's all because step by step I proved that I was, I was reliable, that I could do what they needed me to do. And I only got that opportunity because I'd done what I said I could do. I went out, I raised the money, I made this film.
And instead of just saying, take a chance on me, I said, here, this is what I can do. And I can do it for you. You know, when I work with students, and I love beginners, I work with beginners more than anybody else. And beginners are always saying to me, when can I sell this? Am I going to be able to sell this next week? Am I going to sell this the week after this? When is this done, Peter? That's what they want to know. When am I through? And I say to them, you're the only one that can answer that question because it's up to you. How hard do you want to work? How hard do you want to work? How, how much time do you want to put into it to sell it? And um, this is a field where um, the success rate uh, is, 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 is low. The percentages are so small of people that that happens to. Um, there are extremely talented writers out there that probably deserve that to happen, but it's just, it just really, unfortunately, doesn't happen. I think last year, 160 spec scripts sold in Hollywood. There are probably 20,000 submitted. So think about that. That's not to say you shouldn't do it, because if you have a dream and passion, you can get it done. I've seen it done. I just had a student sell two scripts to a major studio. Um, now, he's very talented. Vladimir is very talented, uh, but he's also been working for at, at it for four years. What a writer should expect is that it's going to take three to ten years to break into the entertainment industry. That's what it takes. This is what we see day in and day out. It is hardly ever done in shorter spurts. Um, I know somebody watching this will go, well, I'm the one who's going to do it and more power to you. But this is just the general expectations. I have both clients and friends who are breaking in all the time, every day. They're all working at it for years and that's okay. This is what it takes. This is how it works. In all likelihood, you're not selling your first. If your first can get you some exposure, fantastic. But we are in an industry where right now we're in the beginning of September. We sold 43 specs this year. That's an abysmal number. So we're not selling a lot of product right now. It's going to change. We're going to sell more. But the likelihood of selling a script in a market where roughly 80,000 scripts are getting registered a year with the WGA and 41 or 43 are selling within eight, nine months, not high. You just have to run the numbers. It is a lottery. People ask, how, how do you sell a screenplay? And, and the first part of that is, um, is be brilliant, you know, write a brilliant screenplay. Get your craft to the point where it's so good, people can't, um, can't deny it. Writing a really kick-ass script and putting it in front of somebody and making the first page so good that they have to keep reading to page five and making the first five pages so good they have to keep reading to page 10 and making the first 10 pages so good that they never put it down until they get to the last page and they have to pick up the phone and call you as soon as they're done. That's how good your script has to be. And it can't be that good that you can't think it's that good. All your friends have to read it and think, holy shit, this is the best thing I've ever read. Can I say that on your... Yeah, please. We're on the internet, right? Yeah, yeah please. We'll, we'll and, censor it for the ratings. Okay. And, uh, and then your friends have to show it to their friends. And people who don't even know you have to read this and think, this is the best thing I've ever read. I can't wait to see this on television or in the movies. And when you have a script that's getting that kind of reaction from your friends, then you can walk into somebody's door and say, here, this is what I can do. Read this and you will hire me. And you'll have that confidence to go into the room and exude that. And if you have that confidence, people will read that first page. If you walk into somebody's office and you feel that way about your material and you know without a shadow of a doubt 
that this is a great script, that gets across to people and they'll read your first page. If you have a bulletproof script that people absolutely love, the chances of you getting it done are pretty high. But the chances of you getting all those other things as an unknown coming straight out of college or out of high school or whatever it is or it being your first script are, are very rare. A good script honestly kind of sells itself. And that's the biggest problem is that people don't have the script that sells itself. Um, a script will open doors for you. You don't have to open the door. And that ends up being the biggest problem. People think there's some trick to it, but there's not a trick to it. The trick to it is to have the script that when people read it, they say, I want to spend money to make this movie. And those scripts are hard to write. Um, the, the break that I had that got me to Los Angeles was I gave a copy of a script to a woman I had a crush on um, and said, there's a role in here that's perfect for you. She immediately moved to Los Angeles, was in a B-horror movie, um, gave a, the, a copy of that script to the, I want to say the line producer, but somebody on the set, not the producer, um, not the big producer, but some underling, and said, there's a role in here that's perfect for me. He read the script and goes, this is so much better than this crapping movie I'm working on now, handed it to his best contact, handed it to his best contact, and that script traveled. And that's what you want is the script that travels, that when people read it, they go, I want to be associated with this project. And those are the hard ones to write. Those are the ones that people underestimate how they think their script is at that level and it's not there yet. And that's, I, I don't know, that's the, the hardest thing is like you need to have the great script. I don't know, and, and that's writing. Perfect your script. You become a better writer. This is a skill-based craft. Your skill gets stronger and stronger. Your muscle gets stronger and stronger the more you write. So you do have to keep writing and perfecting your craft in order to get to a place where you can write those really hard to execute scripts. How do you make it brilliant? You make it brilliant by exposing it first to other people. Like we talked about, you know, at, at another point, um, you want to hear your stuff read out loud. You want other people to hear your stuff read out loud and you want to be open to that experience. Um, by being open to the experience, what that means is don't have a Q&A afterwards. Um, give your give your friends wine and cheese um, and have them all you want to know is what parts you like what parts what parts were you not that interested in that's all you want to know Neil Gaiman once said that 95% of the comments you get on a work of art is accurate 95% of the solutions you're given are inaccurate so you don't want to hear what, you know, why don't you make them all, uh, you know, uh, uh, pygmies from Borneo? No, you don't want to hear that. What you do want to hear is, I love that part. Eh, this part, eh. You know, if, if, if that means that a human being went, eh, at a certain part, you got to take that into account. What, you know, is it true? Is it not true? Is, what, what is meh in that? Uh, can, is there a fix to it? So you want to get your script as good as you possibly can get it. Um, and there's no substitute for hearing it read out loud. Uh, before they made Night at the Opera, the Marx Brothers didn't just go onto the set and be brilliantly funny. They toured those set pieces, like, uh, like the stateroom scene, up and down the West Coast in vaudeville all summer long. So they knew absolutely, based upon human beings' reactions, what was playing. And so when they shot it, when they went to shoot it, they knew exactly what was funny and what wasn't funny. But if your first page is amateurishly written, they're going to stop right there. Somebody sent me a great idea, and it was one of the few times uh, in the last year where somebody contacted me, said, hey, I have this idea for a movie. I've written a script. 
would you read it? And the, the, the pitch, uh, which they actually broke the rules, and they sent me the pitch in the very first email, so that I had, you know, I would have had to stop reading and, you know, to not have been exposed to the idea. And fortunately, it was not an idea I already had. Um, but it was an interesting idea. And so I said, sure, send me the script. And, you know, we did a release form, and they sent me the script. And I, I got the script, and I was really excited to read it. And the first page, I opened it up, and it wasn't even formatted properly. Um, and I read the first page, and, and they weren't writing in proper sentences. And I had to slog through this thing to figure out what they were trying to say. And I gave up after a couple of pages because they just, they'd abused me, basically. They'd stolen my time, they'd wasted my time on something that wasn't a professional product that could never be produced in its current state. And maybe if I had forced myself to read the whole script, there would have been a, a nugget in there that was a great idea. And with some work, you know, I could have pounded the script into shape and tried to do something with it. But who has that time? And who knows? You could get to the end of this 120-page script. It takes you two hours out of a very busy day. And you get to the end, and it could all have been crap, even, even though that one-sentence pitch they sent me was a good idea. So you've got to be sure. And you can't just read it yourself and think it's great. Other people have to be telling you it's great. When it's ready to be seen by eyes, other than your own. We generally recommend that this is where you would send it to your writers group. This is where you would get professional feedback, where you really need um, uh, mentorship, uh, where you really need somebody who can guide you through the rewrite process. And once that's happened, once you really have a working draft that you can send out, um, then you, that's when you start contacting um, producers, that's when you can start sending it out to festivals and, and to contests and things like that. Generally speaking, we find that people have more success um, trying to work with uh, producers, independent producers, um, and teaming up with people in that way, as opposed to trying to get an agent or a manager right out, uh, right out of the gate. It's pretty rare that that uh, scenario happens with a first-time writer. So, um, you know, work with, work with the connections that you have, make sure that you're networking, make sure that you're sending it um, to the people that you know. And if it really is truly ready to send out to the world, you should be getting back some, some pretty positive responses at that time. If you're in love, you will stick things out, right? When we're married, sometimes there's places where things aren't all that great. But we love the person, we're passionate about the person, we're going to stick it out. That's just like writing. You have to know that this process is going to take time. If you aren't prepared for that, then you will drop out. You will fail. Um, it is a matter of having the passion and the confidence. Because you're also going to be told it's bad. Almost all the writers I work with that are, that are super successful are people who can be told they suck repeatedly and simply go, you're not right, and I'm going to work again. The first script, man, I, you know, I was like everybody else. I mean, I got my, I did exactly what I said earlier, the three pieces of coverage. And, you know, I was expecting them to come back brilliant. You know, I was expecting them to get the humor. It had a lot of comedy in it. And, um, you know, one person liked it. 
they were all passes, by the way, they were all passes. And uh, one person liked it. The other person was like, I like this character and I like this character. And one person just eviscerated it. And I, of course, spent, you know, like five days obsessing over that one piece of coverage going, you know, the son of a bitch doesn't get it. He's got no sense of humor. He's an idiot. You know, what would he know? And, you know, I went through that whole entire thing. Great example. I have a friend who's extremely successful now on television. A few years ago, she wrote a, her first movie script. She was a stand-up comic. And this script got three huge actresses all vying to play the lead. In fact, they all three ended up doing it. They came to her house to live with her, uh, to see how she lived. The, the script sold for an enormous amount of money. She was just on cloud nine. Movie was made, came out. Worst movie in history. Critics eviscerated it. What did she do? She played us the tapes of the critics telling her, telling, saying, that this, saying cruel things. She laughed at them. She went back to her desk the next day. She started writing again, totally off her, brushed off her back. And now she's, she works for a, a, one of the best, most respected um, television shows on cable. There are critical respect as well. I gave it to this person because he's a struggling writer. And uh, he said to me, man, I just don't know you know, uh, what to do. I, I pitch it and they don't get me and whatever. And so I gave it to him and I showed him seven versions is what it took to get to this point. So I, I don't, I, he left, I think. <laughs> but uh, I just gave it to him. I said, man, it takes you a while. You can't quit. Everybody's shameful. Shameful that you're going to be rejected. Shameful that nobody's returned your phone call. Shame, shame that, that you might call somebody and they don't remember you. Um, but my feeling is, is that if you called me and said, Steve, can you help me out? Why wouldn't I say yes? I like being a good person. I like helping people out. Most people are like me. In the entertainment field, you, there's a lot of rejection. And, and the only way out of it is to take a deep breath and realize that the person you're talking to is just another human being. And if they don't respond to you, I mean, I'm not talking about buy your project. I'm talking about just agree to meet. If they don't agree, you know, if they don't want to meet with you, well, that says something more about them than it does about you. But you've, more people have gotten deals or, or made sales based upon knowing somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. And if you don't get it out there and say, could you show or, or, do you, or could you help me? Well, no one's a mind reader. No one's going to say, I can feel that Karen wants help. I'm, you know, <laughs> you know we're, we're not the X-Men. All you can do is ask. Sometimes, you know, the answer is no, but, but all you can do is ask. And, uh, and then there are places that are actively looking. Um, uh, Nickelodeon, uh, Writers on the Verge, uh, the big the big break contest. I mean, there's all these places where if your stuff is brilliant. Now, if your stuff isn't brilliant, it's not gonna. You know, you can't pretend to yourself it's brilliant and blame other people for not buying it. Sure. But if your stuff is brilliant, um, then there's then there's avenues that you can explore to get it out there. Great material rises to the top. You do need a little bit of luck. There's a lot of things that go into being a successful writer, but. If the content, you know, whatever the luck is, the luck is a product of having, you know, the luck is secondary, is something that's going to happen on the next level after you, after you produce the great content.
because no, it doesn't matter how much luck you have. If it gets in front of somebody and they think it's garbage, they're not going to, you know, and if it is garbage, if the material's not there, it's, it's done. So you have to make sure it's the best it can be. And if you really want it to be the best it, it, it can be, you have to put your trust in somebody or a couple of somebodies. Because at the end of the day, it comes down to the connections that you have and, um, you know, it's about who you know. Another thing is to make relationships. It is amazing how many people that you meet one year pay off five years later. Uh, I, I just ran into somebody here that I knew as an executive like 20, 25 years ago. And she says, remember when we used to have lunch together? And I said, oh yeah. And I got a phone call some time ago from a vice president of CIA, the agency. She says, Linda, remember we knew each other when we were both starting out. If you have any people you want to send my way, I'm open to that. And so these things many times take a long time. But the other thing to remember is that people are not just there to be your opportunity. People are there because you really like them. And then you find over a period of time that things start to you know, develop and you want to work together because you enjoy and you truly like each other. You were talking earlier about you know, meeting Joan Baez. I go into Ralph's grocery store, I'm standing in line behind a movie star or a, you know, a director or something because they live here, you know, and you can easily bump into somebody that could change your career. So it's good to be here, those things can happen. I actually, one of my script deals came from standing behind a, a producer who I recognized. And I basically said, I've got a script in the trunk of my car. You know, can I get it for you? And he's like, well, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm here. I'm going to get it. i got to go home and do this. And I'm like, well, if I get it to you before you get out of this line. And he said, sure. And I managed to do that. So it was, there was a suspense, by the way, and the line's moving. Um, but uh, he read it and we, he didn't buy that script, but we ended up having a series of meetings and I ended up getting a deal off it. But that's one of those things that can happen here. You then want to let people know about it. And how do you let people know about it? One way is uh, to, you don't need to become Bill Murray, but you do need to lose all shame. And shame is, oh, you know, I used to go to high school with that person, but I haven't talked to them in 20 years. Oh, I can't just call them up and why not? Why not just call them up? Because there's an important thing. Uh, this isn't as true in New York, but in Los Angeles, Los Angeles is high school with money. What does that mean? That means that if you're a great, a great transfer student, but no one knows you, you're not getting invited to the party. No matter how wonderful you are, no one knows you. So in Los Angeles, face-to-face -face is, so is so much more valuable than some abstract, brilliant script. First, you need to let people know about it. Just a case in point, uh, I, I, was, uh, I was doing a project for, uh, for HBO several years ago. And these uh, comics from Montreal had written a script. I thought, they gave it to me, I thought it was very funny. Um, a Disco Inferno, uh, about uh, you know, kind of a spoof of all disaster films. And uh, it centered around a disco that somebody had, you know, had inadvertently placed or, or evilly placed, because the evil developer placed in, a, in what they thought was a dormant volcano. So Disco Inferno. Um, and uh, I, you know, they said, could you help us? So I said, well, I know some people. So I sent it around to some people. Didn't get much of a, much of a, a response. Then I met a guy at a party, a dinner party. 
I sat next to him for about two hours. We talked, made him laugh. He made me laugh. I sent him the script. He was working as 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 a, as a executive uh, at some company. The script got optioned by these people. What's the difference? The only difference was he knew me. He met me. I was a nice guy. I was an okay guy. So he read the script knowing that as opposed to just reading the script on its own merits, whether you thought it was funny or not funny. So that, that taught me the power of face-to-face -face relationship. Now, how can you create face-to-face -face relationship? One way is to not be shy or, 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 or shamed. Make a list of everybody who you've ever met or might have met or, 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 or possibly met or stood behind in Starbucks waiting for a coffee. Everybody and studiously, methodically get in touch with all of them. What do you have to lose? Because here's the thought. If somebody came to you and said, I need your help, what would you do? You would say, okay, if I can help you, sure. Why are those people different? They're human beings too. People want to help other people. Now, there will be people who are assholes. Well, they're not going to help you because they're assholes. I once asked somebody, when I first came to Los Angeles, I was looking to get settled somewhere. I asked somebody, uh, could we get together? I'd love to pick your brain. And there was this long pause on the phone. And she said, I don't like my brain being picked. And then there was about a minute of awkward conversation. And I hung up and it was like, well, fuck you, you know? Okay, I mean, uh, so she wasn't going to give me any help. But the other part of the story was, it turned out that a guy who I went to college with was a top executive of H at HBO. And so I emailed him. Was it, I think this is actually before emails. I, I called him, left a message, waited three days, called again, without saying, I've already called once, just called again. Because busy guy, one of the top executives at HBO, called again. I must have called 13 times just to sit down with the guy. And, I, and, and, and by the 13th time, his secretary said, you know, he really wants to talk to you. Okay. I mean, one of the things that that taught me was, uh, you know, in New York, if you call somebody and they don't return the phone call, that says something. But here in Los Angeles, if you call somebody and they don't return it, it's because they have 75 other phone calls that, that they haven't gotten to. There are 200 emails, you know, and, and there's only so much time and you're not on the top of their list. But rather than saying, oh, God damn them, I just called again and called again. I didn't call every day. I didn't call five times a day. I had a calendar and I said, enough time is gone. I just left a message. I wasn't asking for a loan. I was just leaving a message. Finally, we set up a meeting and I go in there and I say, uh, Chris, do you remember me? We went to college together. And he said, you forgot. We went to high school too. It turned out I had gone to Stuyvesant High School with him and I had completely forgotten that. Uh, and because he knew me and we had, I had, he had borrowed, you know, uh, French fries from my plate, you know, in the cafeteria at Hofstra University. And this is my good friend. This is my good friend, Panther. Um, uh, he said, well, what do you got for me? And I told him one of my ideas. He said, why don't you get together with this guy, Dave, down the hall? And that started my, uh, that started me in Los Angeles. And none of that would have happened if I had simply given up on the first try or second try. A lot of selling is who do you know 
And I would encourage people, uh, first of all, I would encourage people to submit their screenplays to, to screenwriting competitions. When you start getting a first place or a second or third, particularly in the big ones, the agents will come after you. Maybe a producer will come after you. So that's one thing to do. I placed uh, second in uh, the Creative World Awards out of, I think it was 5,000 scripts. Obviously, you're going to get exposure from that. The exposure that I got from that led to a couple of people that I knew through social media. There was somebody that was interested. They knew somebody that I knew on social media. That person went to bat for me with somebody else. And all of a sudden, there was, again, this web that I talked about earlier. All of a sudden, this was an expansion that led me to David Greenblatt. And you know, David founded Endeavor back, I think, in the you know, late 80s or whatever, sold it to William Morris, which is why William Morris Endeavor. He's one of the co-founders of it. He's been repping Shane Black since 1984. David wasn't somebody I was getting in front of without... Uh, people vouching for me, people that I had cultivated relationships on, with on social media who knew this person, who knew that person, who wanted to read the work now, who wanted to take a look at it, and who finally got it to a director who was repped by David. And the director said to David, you need to read this. And a day later, the director was on a plane out here and I was sitting in front of David, and three weeks later, I was repped. It doesn't happen without social media. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. But it also doesn't happen had I not cultivated those relationships, had I not worked the social media side of things. And, you know, there's no bigger shining example than that, you know, for me. I mean, it just doesn't happen without it. What I like to try and do is I like to have someone else uh, approach managers and agents for me. So um, I will talk to potentially some of the talent that we had um, on Killing Winston Jones, or I will talk to some of the connections that I have from when I was working at Innovative, the assistants that I worked alongside now that are, um, you know, agents or junior agents or development execs or um, working in some creative capacity in the industry and see if they can, you know, call in the favor for me. I mean, the thing is, I have developed quite a few relationships, so what I try to rely on is people that actually want to help me. So if, if they read a script of mine and it's the worst thing they've ever read, then it's not a fit for them to try and help me and take it to anyone. But if they read it and it, and it speaks to them for some reason um, and they want to take it out or they want to talk to someone about it for me, I, you know, that's primarily how I approach the situation. I just think that having worked in the agencies Receiving an email, if you're an assistant or you're an agent, you're so busy with other projects, that email is most likely gonna end up in the trash. And I'm not saying that it should be that way and it's too bad that it is that way, but that's just, that's just the way that it is. Um, it's the same with cold calling or a phone call. If you can have someone call on your behalf, if you know someone who's represented at that boutique agency or that top agency and they can make a call on your behalf and get the ball rolling, that's usually the best way to do it. So I think you'll, you'll find a lot more success um, when you can draw those connections. Sure, there are people who have a relative in the business that get their script in. But other than that, even if your script goes through an agent or a manager, there's a flood of scripts that go through agents and managers. You know, It's like they're still going to not pick every single one of those scripts. They're still going to pick the best of those scripts. And the best of those scripts sometimes comes down to odd things like it's you, it's uniqueness, which isn't odd, but it's marketability at that point in time. There's 
times where a script, um, you could write a script and uh, I did this. I wrote a script that was about um, airplane hijacking and then 9-11 happened. And so that script was instantly dead on arrival. But the thing about that script is that pre 9 11 it was it was a, it was an okay script and so that's sort of the reverse of what you want sometimes you end up writing a script and then the, something happens in the world and like this is the script and if you if you have that great timing you know but you also have to have the great script to back it up there's a a small corollary to that which is in comedy it's great to have a great comic premise uh, the lie that tells the truth um, if you have a great premise, something that's so delicious that makes other people want to see that movie, have the movie start to happen in their own imagination, that's a great selling tool. Um, that's, that's basically the, the story of Groundhog Day, where the original script, not as funny as what you, what you end up with in the, in the final film, uh, the structure is all different, the character is very different. In the original draft, um, the character of Phil is just a nice guy. He's got no lesson to learn. He's just kind of stuck for 70 pages in this terrible time warp, and then he gets out of it. And so there's no, you know, you don't feel the same cathartic sense of satisfaction as you do in the, you know, in the, in the final revised draft. But the film had such a great premise, a premise that hadn't been overdeveloped, that it just made Harold Ramis want to buy it immediately. So if you have a great premise, uh, a premise that no one else has thought of, or basically a premise that you have lifted from an earlier, and by earlier I mean way earlier, 1920s, 1930s film that hasn't been explored in a long time that you can put your own, your own twist on, your own take on, that's a great selling tool. Uh, the other way is just to um, work this circuit, which is to uh, uh, send this to the agents to send this to and don't worry anybody's gonna steal your idea that's a beginner's worry as well nobody's gonna steal your idea chances are very unlikely because uh, ideas are a dime a dozen it is your execution of them that makes the story valuable not the fact you've come up with this amazing high concept uh, it's generally that's that's not the important part of your story it's how the story plays out and is executed. So you send them to, um, you, send, you send your scripts to agents, you send your scripts to uh, producers, you send your script to the studios, you do it that way. Getting an agent, it, it's, it's really important. Look, there were more features made last year than ever. There were 600 features made last year. That's more than there's ever been made, more than ever been released in Hollywood. So it's a myth that the feature world is dying, but, it is increasingly difficult to get a independent type movie, like a drama or a small movie, financed by the studios um, or even by the independents. Um, they, they, they buy them at Sundance or now they buy them from websites. So you have to work around the fact that the traditional ways in which independents were bought, you know, it doesn't happen that much anymore. But you still need to send them out. You still need to email your script. You still need to get it patented uh, with the Library of Congress or through the Writers Guild and just send it out. Send it out. The more you send it out, uh, the, the better chances you are someone's going to see it. But you see, my feeling these days is that you can write screenplays from anywhere. And, you know, wherever you live, 
you can write screenplays. The, 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 and then I'll tell you a story that I think that divides that. And, and when I was living here still, I'd sold a script called Original Sin to Synergy, to Andy Voina. I sold it, I think, for a million two fifty. And um, about four or five months after the sale, I was in, we were in Hawaii vacation, and he calls me and he's, he says, I'm very upset. He said, you know, um, the, I just heard that Hearst Corporation for television bought a script called Original Sin. Really? Yeah, he said, it's your script. It's your script, exactly your script. Your manual typewriter, because that's all I can do is my middle fingers on a manual typewriter. So I said, really? Yeah, and they said, they said, well, but there's a different name on it. There's some guy whose name is on it. I said, well, who is the guy? He said, well, believe me, I've got a team of lawyers looking into this to see who the hell this guy is. And he called me back a couple days later, and he's a, he said he's a mailman in Chicago um, who lives with his mother. And he's in a screenwriting course. I said, yeah. And he said, well, in the screenwriting course, they were teaching original sin. So this guy took the script, Xeroxed it, still on my typewriter, put his own name on it, gave it to an agent in Chicago. The agent in Chicago gave it to an agent in Hollywood, and they sold it for 600 grand. Right? Very easy. So the moral of that story is you don't have to live here, you can live anywhere. <laughs> You really do have to see it as your training piece. Um, so if you have five ideas and one you love and it's the one that you think is going to make you a million dollars, hold that back. Work on your skill before you invest it in it. Because oftentimes I'll talk to my writers who are newer writers and we'll talk about where a script is at and they will say to me, I think I brought it as far as I can bring it skill-wise at this point. I need to set it aside. If I wanted to go further, I need to revisit it in a year, two years, when I've worked on other stuff, um, which is the right, the right assumption. What's also extremely important, if this is your first script and you've gotten it to a place where it is ready to show people, typically the best thing you can do at that point is to set it aside and write something else mm -hmm. and write your second script and get that to a place where you can show people because then you have two things that you can show because you know, this, this business is funny that way. If they, if they see something that, that they like that is maybe not for them, they're gonna say, wow, I like this writer, what else do they have? And if you don't have anything else, then that says that you're not ready yet to, to be a professional. So you really need to have some things under your belt. I think you need at least two to three ready-to-go uh, feature-length scripts or two to three ready-to-go TV spec script ideas um, that are completely ready to present to the marketplace. Um, and that takes time to get to. But I think you need that in your arsenal as a minimum to be taken seriously by decision makers and to showcase your skills. The trunk of my car, actually right now it's on a, a, a thing on my pocket, but uh, the trunk of my car, I learned a lesson. I went to the San Francisco Film Festival. Robert Evans was uh, speaking. Robert Evans said at the end of his little speech, he said, if any of you have a script, now's the time to come down and give it to me. This guy was like the head of Paramount Pictures at the time. And I'm like, I have a bunch of scripts at home. 
So I learned my lesson. And from that point on, I have a box of scripts in the trunk of my car. I probably still have, you know, some scripts back there, but they don't get replenished like they used to um, with a spare tire. And it's like, you know, if, if I'm someplace and I bump into somebody, I've got a script I can hand them. Uh, like I said, right now, things are like PDF, so I can say, I've got it on this drive. Can I plug it into your, you know, your computer and, or whatever and uh, go from there? I keep them, gosh, I've got, I keep two in my bag. And, and uh, you know, I, I just believe, in fact, I gave one to someone I met in the hall. We were talking and the guy, it's, it's your calling card, you know? Um, you know, of course, obviously, I'm not going to walk around down the hall passing it out to everyone. But if I feel like the conversation warrants it. You don't know when you're going to bump into somebody and it's better to have, you know, what else is in the trunk of your car? You know, the spare tire and if you have, and, and junk. But it's like if you have a box with just scripts in it and have several copies of your scripts and that and have I have a variety. So if I bumped into somebody that was looking specifically for like a big action movie, I had the big action script. If I was looking for some, if I bumped into somebody who was looking for a small thriller, I had the small thriller script. So I kind of came prepared in my genre. Now you're in your third project, your fourth project, and uh, now you're really, you know, you're, you're getting stuff that should be seen. But, uh, but again, know what you're doing with it. You know, this, this is a sample of your best work. It's a sample of what you can do. And so uh, that, again, you know, two different projects. One is more your particular voice. The other one really shows, as, as Vicky said, you know, you understand genre. You understand um, the the basic structure of storytelling, uh, because that's this mysterious thing to producers and directors and actors, and they don't know where that comes from, and they need writers who can do that. And so you've got to be able to show. I'm one of those people who can do that. Uh, so um, the the main yeah. the main point of creating this thing is to be your sample. See, the last way to do it is to interest a star, especially if you're making a smaller movie. A movie that a lot of the people that probably are coming to these conferences want to make a personal movie, a cool movie that, about real life, a drama. Stars get these made. Um, you know, uh, I, I was involved in the development of a book that was um, was never going to make a movie uh, uh, until um, Brad Pitt. Uh, it was a very uh, unusual story, and, and it wasn't even very good, but it had a great premise. Uh, when Brad Pitt got interested in it because he was sent uh, this story, uh, then for the next three years, he just saw it through uh, several directors, a couple of producers, finally Scott Rudin took it, and they made a, a fantastic movie of it. So getting a star interested in your, your quirky story is a great way. To get, and how do you do that? You just send it to the, to the star's agent. Go to IMDb Pro. You'll see a general email for most of these production companies. It's a myth, by the way, that Hollywood doesn't read stuff that they get over the transom and that's like, it's a myth. Because you know who gets that script when at the company? This bored intern chained to their desk for nine hours a day and wanting nothing more than to get away from that desk by finding the next cool project. Chances are, if you send that script in, even if they go, well, you never read them. Well, we just turn them right around. It's, our, it's litigation, we can't read them. I'm telling you, because I, I teach a lot of those people at UCLA Extension, often they do read those scripts. So, and what do you have to lose by sending them into those production companies? Nothing. So what they, they say they turn them around, a lot of times they read them anyway. That's, that's just the truth. When I was working at Innovative, um, I, uh, Joel Moore had just come off the success of Dodgeball. And so everyone there at the agency was courting him. They wanted to give him different projects to go out on. 
um, and he was in the office all the time. And one day I ran into him and I said, uh, I have this script that I'm writing and I think you would be absolutely perfect for one of the roles. Uh, that role ended up going to John Heater when we finally got it made, but um, you know, that's probably a green thing to do. I was an assistant at the time. I don't know that I'd recommend that to people, but Joel being the brilliant and kind person that he is, um, you know, indulged me and said, great, when you have it, send it to me. I'll read it. I'll read anything that you send me. Um, and once I left the agencies and I was uh, taking the time to finish this particular project, Killing Winston Jones and the script, I sent it to him. And because of that small interaction that we had, you know, all those years earlier. And luckily, um, he read it and he really enjoyed it. I mean, he called me a day after I sent it to him and, and wanted to uh, direct it and star in it and produce it, uh, which of course I'm not gonna say no because anyone at that point that's bringing themselves on, especially someone um, with the credits uh, such as Joel has, you know, that's, that's a great opportunity for me. So um, based on that, um, that connection alone, we were able to make it, uh, to make the film. Now that's rare though. Um, I think that, like I said, uh, what I was getting at before, um, those moments are few and far between. I, I think if you're working in an agency capacity and talent comes in and you can talk with them, great, do it. But a lot of times if you were to see an agent or see an actor on the outside world and you started pitching them your idea or your project, it's just not, not going to happen. It's the same with representation. You know, The more people you can have in your corner helping you and talking with people on your behalf, especially people who have established themselves at that point, um, that's going to be the most helpful. Uh, my first script deal came from a, a, a in the weird old world of 35 millimeter film. Um, a guy named Paul Curiazzi, who went to my community college, was making drive-in movies, uh, drive-in kung fu movies on 35, and he made them in the East Bay area. And we had uh, become friends. I'd actually worked on one of his films called Weapons of Death. You can tell it's an Oscar caliber movie by that title. And basically worked for free every weekend uh, on this film. And so he had read a couple of my scripts um, and they were in English and uh, made sense. And so he ended up having a project where he had a, a, a script that was terrible. And he said, look, we have the cast, we have the location, we have a script that doesn't work. If you can give us a script that does work in two weeks using this cast and this location, we'll film your script instead of this script. If you can't, we're going to have to go with the other script. And so I basically took two weeks off from my day job, uh, wrote a script against the clock using all those things. And it was, of course, almost anything could have been better than other script, but it was better than the other script. And we filmed it in, uh, in Oakland and Walnut Creek and uh, just basically shot this silly kung fu movie um, called Ninja Busters, before Ghostbusters, by the way, um, but, uh, but after Crime Busters. Uh, but this silly movie called Ninja Busters, and that was my first credit. I was a, a big fish in a small pond for a while and was writing scripts for any local person that thought it would be fun to be in the film business. And, uh, you know, so I sort of did that for, it's probably a year of, of making money at it, and then it was back to the day job. I was the second assistant director on a movie called National Lampoon's Vacation, the first one where they go to 
fake Disneyland place there, Wally World. And Chevy Chase was the star of the movie and heard, learned somehow that I had written spec scripts and was incredibly generous and said, give me one, I want to read it. So I had written a script for a show called Police Squad, which was the TV predecessor to the Naked Gun movies. And Chevy read it. I still have the script in my office now. Uh, he gave me a B plus, uh, which was pretty nice of him, and then wrote notes on it and then signed it Mel Brooks. But, it, but at the end of it, and he said this to me personally too, he said, seriously, you have talent and you should keep doing this. And I can't tell you what that meant to me at that time to have somebody who was a big comedy star and had been a writer himself on variety shows, including Saturday Night Live and the Smothers Brothers and so on, say, yes, keep doing this. So I had that encouragement. Uh, also, my other break was that I, aside from life break, I met my wife and her uncle was a CBS uh, current comedy executive. And he read my spec scripts and said, these are good. And he got them to an agent who eventually became my agent, but he read the police squad script and the script I'd written with my former partner said, these are excellent. I cannot represent you because you're not writing with your partner and police squad's not on TV and there's nothing on TV like it. So write another script. I wrote a cheer script, called him up. He read the script. I didn't hear from him for several weeks. And so I had to make that dreaded phone call where you're, you haven't heard, so you're sure it's not going to be good news. And he took the phone call and I, when I asked if he'd read the script, he said, uh, yeah, it was really funny. And then just stopped talking. And I said, isn't that good for a comedy that it's funny? He said, yes, but it's too dirty, even for Cheers. It's like an R-rated Cheers, which became a joke between us as the years went on and he represented me because I did nothing but squeaky clean family comedies like The Cosby Show and the TGIF shows on, on ABC's family lineup. And no one thought I could write adult comedy. And I almost begged him to take this 20-year-old <laughs> script out at one point in time and send it around. But it took time for me to get that good. And so when he said, you have to write another script beyond the cheers, I wrote another cheers. And then he made some suggestions and I took the notes and rewrote the script a little bit. And at that point he said, okay, I can represent you. And, um, and I don't want to continue with this story because then he called me two months later. I had a job as an assistant director then. I was the first AD by that time on a show called Knott's Landing, one of the nighttime soap operas. Uh, so the bills were getting paid. And then he calls me up in early September, late August of 1984, and says, I have great news. There, Bill Cosby is doing a new situation comedy, and they read your script, and they really like it, and they want to hire you, but you've got to go to New York for the job. Well, the previous year, for, I idolized Bill Cosby, listened to his records as a child, so this was an unbelievable offer. Uh, the previous year, though, when my wife was pregnant and we had an eight-year-old, I was out of town doing the only job I could find for four months. So it was, would have been disastrous for my marriage to leave town again. So I turned the job down, and my wife's uncle, the CBS executive, said to me, this is two weeks before Cosby premiered, you're better off. The show's in a terrible time slot. It's up against Magnum PI. It's probably not going to last more than 13 weeks. Well, the show came on and lasted more than 13 weeks. It was a huge hit out of the box. My wife felt horrible at this point in time, like she denied my, my dream in life. But it worked out. Uh, I did, I had my day job at Knott's Landing, got a freelance assignment on another sitcom called Webster. So I got a writing credit that year. And the following year, um, the baby wasn't so little and The Cosby Show still was interested in hiring me. So I went and did the second season of The Cosby Show. So there's an all's well that ends well story for you. <laughs> now, there's two kinds of questions I, I never answer. One is, uh, should I pursue this? You know, uh, 
The, well, the answer is no. If you have to ask, then you shouldn't do this. Um, it's too frustrating. Again, Philip Roth yesterday, New York Times, writing his frustration. It's frustration, not to mention humiliation. Quote, close quote. Roth, this isn't some newcomer trying to make his way through the publishing business. This is the superstar author of, of the 31 books. Bestseller after bestseller after bestseller after bestseller. Movie deals up the wazoo. And he says it's frustration and humiliation. Don't go into it if there's something else that you can do. It's kind of crazy. It's not smart. It's kind of dumb. And um, if you're really, really smart, you don't go into it. This is not for really, really smart people. Um, you got to be dumber if, than that if you want to succeed in, in creative expression. You got to be a little crazy.